with Abdul Abdullah, David Capra and Nat Randall on FBI Radio. You're listening to FBI 94.5 and this is Canvas, a show about art and ideas created by a team of artists. We are broadcasting from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay respects to our Indigenous listeners and their elders past and present. My name is Nat Randall. My name's David Capra. My name is Abdul Abdullah. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. Today we have a massive program as always. Writer and author Benjamin Law will be on the phone talking about his quarterly essay Moral Panic 101. We have artist Deborah Kelly who will chat about her recent projects here and overseas. And SiteWorks artists Kath Fries and Barbara Campbell will join us in the studio to talk about the birds and the bees. <laughs> but before Ooh. that, what have we got? What have we seen this week? You've had an action-packed week, haven't you? Oh, I have. I was nursing some Young. Sydney contemporary hangovers from last weekend. <laughs> but then yesterday I got to hand out the prizes for the Young Archies, the Young Arch Ball, which is so much fun giving out. There's four age categories, like... Uh, uh, 5 to 8, 9 to 12, 13 to 15, and 16 to 18. So, so four prizes and a bunch of, and 20 finalists. And giving those kids those certificates and that prize money was one of the funnest things that I've ever got to do. Did you think that some of the parents were a bit <laughs> eager and maybe, you know, did they like, do you think that they maybe drew some of the, the works? That's a good question. It, I like often how, think how, that myself. I know, because some of those works... They were pretty amazing. Like, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> as a judge. <laughs> But yeah, there was some pretty spectacular works. <laughs> Can you describe one of them? I'll say the winner of the youngest category, the five to eight, was Poppy, and she she did a self portrait with her her plush toy, which is a penguin that she carries everywhere. And uh, in the background, so the whole page was covered. It was there was a big story going on about what's in her room and what she likes doing, and she was she was a fantastic little personality. Beautiful. David, what have you been up to? I went to, yes, last night I saw the Oceanic Rhythms Songs of the Pacific, hosted by MC Trey and Friends, which was wonderful. Where it's was part that on that? That's at Campbelltown Arts Centre. It's part of the Sydney Sacred Music Festival, which has been happening all over town. And I was looking at their program t- tonight. There is, at 6pm at Glebe Town Hall, there's a Sacred Rituals from the Balkans. So oh, that wow. should be pretty, pretty fantastic. Yeah. What have you been doing, Nats? Uh, I've um, <laughs> yeah, Randy, Nats, and the cat. Um, I've, I've, I've just been um getting well into preparations for my live work show. So yeah. we did a bunch of interviews yesterday for female crew, amazing practitioners around Sydney. Um, and yeah, just doing the big call out for male participants. Can are you going to consider Can, me and Absy? I mean, yeah, I'll, con- I'll consider it. <laughs> You'll consider it. Where do we hand in our resume? Uh. Look, yeah, if you just send me a personal Facebook Carol. message and I'll, okay. uh, yeah, I'll assess if you've got the uh, the chops. <laughs> um, now, this is a bit of a treat. Um, w- you know, we, we do have our curated tracks by Post um, Motel, which we'll get to in a minute. But I just thought I'd um, put this song on. It's a bit of a... Um, I don't know. Have you seen that documentary of Eileen Werner? The, the, Not that yet. Was ba- oh, my God. It will... Knock your socks off. Um, but it, yeah, obviously, Charlize Theron played her in mm. Monster. Mm. Um, but this was a request that she had um, f- to be played at her funeral after she was um, uh, 
I, I, I don't know what the, the, the word is, but she was, yeah, killed at the hands of the state um, because she was... Right. Um, executed? She was executed, yeah, and so she, this was her request to play this song. It's a bit of, bit of a sombre note this morning, but it's such a beautiful song, and Natalie Merchant, who, who sings it, um, agreed um, for it to be in the, the documentary. It's really beautiful. And then we'll get to our post-motel curated tracks a bit later on.
You are listening to Canvas on FBI 94.5 and that was Cocaine MF by DJ Duro. Thank you to Post Motel for that amazing track. It was a bit of a gear change from Natalie Merchant, which we had <laughs> earlier, which was um, um, my selection. Uh, and yeah, that was the Eileen uh, Vernos, uh, her amazing documentary. It's a heartbreaking piece, but yeah, I think you can see it on Netflix. Netflix. Anyway, over to you, Abdul. SiteWorks is Bundanon's annual spring event, which brings together scientists, artists, and community voices together to share knowledge and ideas arising from the Bundanon site through a series of discussions, presentations, and experiences. In the studio, we have two SiteWorks artists, Kath Fries and Barbara Campbell. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hey, Barbara, you are a SiteWorks veteran. Yes, I am. <laughs> so old. <laughs> For the uninitiated, what can they expect at the event? Um, well, they can expect to be in, first of all, a beautiful environment and um, a focus on that environment, like what it, what it gives you as an artist, but also as, um, as a kind of experimental site, you know, for for bringing science and the arts together. So you will, I mean, it's always a themed event. So this particular site works has a theme of the birds and the bees, <laughs> um, you know, which sounds very sexy and probably will be. But um, also, of course, with both those kinds of species, groups of species, there are serious issues, you know, confronting um well, all life forms, of course, but um, uh, particularly those two. So, uh, yeah, here in the studio we have representations of the birds and the bees. <laughs> I'll be representing the birds. I'll be representing the bees. Oh, you should have been on Eddie's Verses this morning, Birds versus the Bees. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now, um, like, there'll be experiences for young and old, and I've read, but I've read some of the things a little bit more catered for the more mature. Can you tell us about some of the specifically adult events? <laughs> well, um, it depends on adult in what way. Um, <laughs> mine isn't particularly, you know, wink-wink adult. Yeah. Um, mine is uh, basically I, my piece is called Hide, and it is a series of personal bird hides. Um, and they are they are structures that I like to think of as somewhere between architecture and costume. So you can actually get inside a piece of kind of like a semi-cage-like structure. Um, and the the reason why I've made them is so that you can then you are hidden from your human your own human form you know you become something else you're a different shape and you behave differently when you are inside this shape and you get up and close and personal you can. with birds that's right you, you are then able to go into another kind of environment hidden from the birds because you're no longer taking on this human form that most and you know other animals are scared of and you can just be with them in a different way. Yeah. And Kath, what do you do with bees? <laughs> um, for quite a few years now, I've been making uh, installations and sculptures and other artworks with beeswax. So in terms of what I do with the bees, when I'm working with the beeswax, um, 
I heat it up and it has an amazing smell, like a honey-like smell, a sort of an oily honey smell. And the bees are attracted to this smell. So the bees tend to come visiting. So often I have quite a few visiting bees in my studio when I'm working with the, the cool. beeswax, um, which at first I found quite alarming. But then I, I figured out that they actually weren't going to be aggressive. They were just kind of investiga investigating the smell because um, they will actually steal honey from other beehives if they can get away with it. It's kind of like the, the cheap takeaway dinner if they can steal it. Um, <laughs> So it's really interesting how both humans and bees are attracted to the same smells and colours, um, and particularly with a sweet tooth. So looking back um, through history and how humans have evolved, our attraction to sweet things has evolved through through our um, engagements with stealing honey from beehives. And there's some really fascinating um, cave paintings and historical references to those sorts of things. So. Um, part of my work with beeswax is focused on the sensory attraction to this material, which is both um, visual and tactile and aromatic. And where did your attraction to bees start? How did you arrive there? Actually, it began when I did a residency in Bundanon in 2011, because <laughs> I was working with some found pieces of wood and I was sort of... Um, they were full of termite holes that I thought were really fascinating, so I sort of... Um, clearing the dirt out of them and rubbing them back and trying to think what would be a good way to bring the texture out. And I, my first thought was like a furniture polish. And I got some of that and hated the smell. I thought, oh, why not something like beeswax? Because that must smell good. So I started playing with beeswax at that point at Bundanon and have become quite obsessed with bees and beeswax since then. Um, and have done like a beekeeping course and quite a lot of study. And it's been quite a big part of my um, PhD that I'm just finishing too. And I saw some of these beeswax works at Wellington Street projects like just last week. What yes. was that experience like? Oh, Wellington Street projects was a really great um, space to show in and had a really nice bunch of artists in that group show. And we were all working with um, natural materials and things that changed and shifted. Um, and of course, that space is filled with natural light and there's plants outside. So it was a really refreshing and, and interesting sort of um, situation to stage the works in. Um, and Barbara, just speaking on the back of like the, the, the site of Bundanon, how has that affected your work? And are, are there specific, is there a specific bird life that's out there that is uniquely sort of, what is that the Illawarra, like Nowra region or is it? Yeah, yeah. well, like Shoalhaven River. Yeah. So, you know, it's on the river, so that will attract a certain kind of bird life given that uh, water. I mean, I'm not a scientist and I'm certainly not a kind of scientist of that environment um, but when I when I did the first SiteWorks residency in 2010 um, there was quite a long period of um, what would you call it, laboratory work you know we were there for a week and um, there was a guy there who um, sadly is no longer alive but a, a guy called Jim Wallace, who was um, a local and a naturalist, and he absolutely knew everything about both the bird life and the plant life of that site. So he would, he behaved very differently to everyone else. You know, he was just completely in tune with these sounds that no one else was really aware of. So I would watch Jim you know, behave in a particular way and he would notice some, you know, flutter from point A to point B and be completely distracted and then go off and investigate because he knew that that meant a nest was, you know, it was like a behavioural thing that he was just locked into. So it was actually through 
watching him that I became interested in bird behaviour because, you know, they had obviously over his entire lifetime changed him. And, um, and it did actually lead to my own PhD work. Yeah, so I have, since 2010, started and finished a PhD based oh, on this experience. <laughs> Thank you. And what a way! What a way to culminate the yeah. sort of presentation and site works. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a bit of a, a digression, um, but I couldn't have you in here and not talk about it. Um, earlier in August, you opened Neil Roberts' Chances uh, with Glass at Camera Glassworks, an exhibition curated by you and Jane Crush, um, exploring Roberts' fascination and the and the vulnerability and quality of glass, but also its violence. Um, I've read nothing but praise uh, regarding this exhibition. What was it? What was it like for you to put this exhibition together? Well, it was um, really enjoyable. You know, I could re-engage with Neil's work. I haven't curated a show of his work since two thousand and four, I think. So, you know, that's quite a significant period of time to have elapsed, and I could, you know, bring works out from storage and. Um, and really think about one particular aspect of the work, which is this engagement with glass. Um, and there were particular moments which were, you know, just completely kind of magical, um, where, you know, works that I had never seen myself, you know, I'd never seen them displayed, and I'd ne- so I'd never put them up myself, um, that... I only had one photograph of and that was all I had to go by and I had to kind of imagine how this work would actually work, you know. And um, so, you know, four people helping me put this thing together and it worked on torsion and gravity to make it work. And with those kind of forces, it's very hard to predict how they will you know, if it will work. Mm. So there was a point where, you know, just a couple of millimetres, it was, it's, I should describe the work. So it's a whole lot of glass rods, long two metre pieces of very, you know, four mil diameter glass rods that get threaded through like a bundle, like a sheaf of hay almost, through the core of an old pick hand, a pick hand, a pick head. So very heavy cast iron object with these very, very fragile glass rods coming through it. And the whole, the pick head, which is heavy, gets suspended in space by this coming together of these glass rods. So at just one point, it just kind of locked in. Oh my and goodness. then we could just <laughs> move away oh, and the wow. whole thing was just kind of floating there in space so it's like oh my god <laughs> you know that does it's kind of this rare moment yeah. yeah was there um something that you learnt about him through putting this work together um I guess maybe relearned yeah so you know the qualities like Neil's qualities were um largely about I, I mean I always think of his work as uh, a particular brand of feminism by through um, through a critique of masculinity yeah and I think that's what I relearned so you know all kinds of um, just his his 
his critique and engagement with um, arenas of masculinity like boxing rings and street um, gang warfare and um, things like that, um, which he really ex- yeah used glass very in a very sort of precisely emotional way. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. Mm. Um, you can see uh, this exhibition. It's on until October the 15th, so I do urge everyone to get to Canberra to see this amazing work. Over to you, DC. And, Kath, you've done more residencies than I think any other artist I know. <laughs> can you talk about one that's particularly shaped you? Um, I have done a lot of residencies, and a lot of the driving force behind that is um, working with sites and responding to surroundings and situations and <clears throat> this um, process of being present with the time and place that you're in. So the Bundanon residency was really significant for me. Um, but that was, a, that was a while ago in 2011. And more recently in 2015, I did a residency in Finland in the middle of winter, which was really beautiful. It was like being in a fairy tale landscape on the edge of the forest. Everything was covered in snow. They've got these really cute little buildings that are brightly painted in Finland. So they stand out against the snowy background. And um, because so much of my practice is about found materials and our sensory engagement with these materials, that are um, often ephemeral and changing. Um, so I did quite a few works there with icicles and with ash from the sauna and snow that I collected from around the place and then um, worked with them in different ways and documented them as they changed, as they melted or altered over uh, the couple of weeks that I was there. Um, we've just about run out of time. I just want to thank you so much for coming in to talk about the birds and the bees, which is happening at um, SiteWorks next Next Saturday, the 23rd of September, you can camp there. You can, I don't know, drink until the early hours of the morning and what talk if, about... What if hypothetically you're not a, an outdoorsy person and don't like camping? What, what are the alternatives? Glamping. Uh, glamping, <laughs> glamping, yeah. I think yeah. there's some spots for hire. Um, I think in Nowra, a whole bunch of people stay in, you know, in some motels and hotels in Nowra, so... For princesses like yourself, Abdul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to get back to our curated tracks. This is Ghost in the Shell by Aphex Twin.
That was Ghost in the Shell by Aphex Twin. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. And we've got a little bit of Aphex Twin coming through now. On the phone, we have a personal hero of mine. We first met via Twitter back in 2011 after I read his terrific book, The Family Law. And the last time we saw each other, he was wearing all white a la Vin Diesel. And we were dancing at a bar underneath a Canberra hotel. <laughs> Benjamin Law is an author, a journalist, and has recently released a quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101. Hello, Benjamin. G'day. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> hey, thank you. Uh, man, I've been reading your, your essay. I've been reading your essay detailing the fiasco that was the dismantling of the Safe Schools program. You've since been the target of some pretty outrageous editorial. They're really trying to drag <laughs> you. How are you holding up, yeah. man? You know what? It's, this sounds. This makes me sound like a very sick individual. But I've kind of been loving it because <laughs> the, the, the thing is, it's it's hard to get people reading. A twenty-five thousand word investigative journalistic essay about government policy. In this case, the Safe Schools, um, the Safe Schools program, and the fact that the Australian has drawn so much attention to it. The fact that people have been interested in seeing the back and forth conversation between the Australian and me means I've kind of been really engaged and curious and interested in terms of what the other side of the story is. All, all around the nation, people are suddenly reading um, an essay that I really wanted them to read. It's been it's been fantastic publicity. And and that tweet that sort of helped you along the way a few days ago, <laughs> you thanked the unholy alliance of the Australian Sky News and the Australian Spectator for, for giving you a week's worth of national publicity. Um, your hilarious tweet that seemed to cause a stir, a tweet that was grossly misinterpreted, that has the Australian Christian Lobby Group labelling you as uh, a rape advocate. Can you give yes. us a quick overview of what the hell happened what, what actually happened yeah. so for those of you who are just tuning in haven't really been aware of this thing playing out in the last week before my quarterly essay on safe schools and the protection of lgbtiq kids came out and keep in mind that this is an essay that really has to forensically analyze what the australian newspaper got wrong mm. in its coverage about safe schools about a week before the essay came out i put a tweet out there saying you know and this was after like erica betts said same-sex marriage would lead people to marrying bridges, and Kevin Andrews said that um, he wouldn't marry his cycling buddies. Like all these, and, and Lyle Shelton once, once again compared same-sex um, parents raising children as akin to the stolen generations. Mm -hmm. So after all that happened, I kind of tweeted that sometimes I wonder if I'd hate sex, all of the homophobic politicians out there, if it meant it got their homophobia out of their system. Um, the Australian interpreted uh, the term hate effing or hate sex as rape. Um, I'm now apparently a rape advocate, but I think what the Australian has underestimated is that people have access to this magical thing called Google, and they can Google the definition of hate effing or hate sex, and they'll see straight away that I'm not talking about sexual assault. Also, I think it was just hilarious that the Australian started that story on the Monday that my quarterly essay came out. So it's such a transparent campaign against me. It's exactly what I write about in the quarterly essay, so they played right into my hands. And Safe Schools was a program that details its agenda quite literally in its name. Uh, it was designed to make the school environment safer for LGBTQIA students. How has this been seen as a bad thing? 
Okay, so one thing that I really want to make clear, and I do make clear in the essay, is that Safe School started as a Victorian program mm. that had bipartisan support. So under the Liberal government in Victoria, they actually increased funding for Safe Schools because they saw it as so important, so valuable and so successful. When federal labour was about to get knocked out, they introduced Safe Schools, um, which meant that it would have to be carried out by the Abbott government. But the Abbott government approved it, developed it, and were really behind it. They they launched Safe Schools Coalition Australia, and at the very basic level, all Safe Schools was was a cheap, extraordinarily cheap program that asked principals and teachers to sign a pledge that they'd make schools safer for LGBTIQ kids. And they have been recognised for decades now as the most vulnerable demographic, both to bullying and suicidality. So wanting to commit suicide, attempting to commit suicide and committing suicide. So it was this kind of political no-brainer and it was really mild. You know, principals and teachers signed a pledge and then it was really up to them as to how they thought they should keep uh, LGBTIQ kids safe. Nothing else was required of them, just signing a pledge. What were some of the lies? Well, well, what were some of the things that the Australians said that were just straight out wrong? Okay, so the Australian made a mistake in conflating safe schools with an optional resource that was developed in November 2015 called All of Us. And All of Us is a, you know, a lesson that was developed uh, in conjunction with the Australian curriculum, assessed by Australian curriculum experts, and also developed, I know this sounds really boring because it is, but it was also developed um, in, within the Federal Department of Education. So there were so many checks and balances. Again, this is an optional resource, but when the Australians started publishing it, they basically presented safe schools as the resource. Your children are being taught this, whereas that's not what safe schools is at all. And this week, the forms for same sex, the same-sex marriage public site have been sent to Australian homes, and the campaign for the no groups from the no groups has been pretty toxic. How do you think mm. this has affected LGBTQI communities? Well, it's interesting how they've um, how the no campaigners have basically not really been able to focus on the consequences of same-sex marriage and safe schools has kind of been weaponized in all of this because the campaign against safe schools. The misinformation about safe schools was so effective, it makes parents scared. And when you think about same-sex marriage, they are, the, the No campaign knows that most Australians support same-sex marriage. Um, they know that the arguments against same-sex marriage don't really hold up. A lot of people know same-sex parents nowadays as well. So as a result, um, they say, look, if you're going to, if you're going to um, say yes to same-sex marriage, you're going to say yes to this toxic safe schools program that you've heard about for a year in the Australian where they published 90,000 words on how bad this program Whoa. was, you know. So, so it, it's been quite an easy argument and, a, and an effective tool for them to use safe schools as, as, as artillery in their fight against same-sex marriage. And Benjamin, would you be able to give our listeners an idea of where we are with the safe, um, safe schools program? Is it being implemented in any way or...? Yeah, so look, Safe Schools was federally funded and it was rolled out quite happily for, um, for th- uh, four years, actually. And funding has just expired and is just about to expire countrywide. So it was, you know, it's different state by state. Um, some states, actually most Australian states will continue funding Safe Schools out of their own pocket in some way, shape or form. Some states and territories aren't going to call it safe schools because the brand has been completely rubbished now. Mm. Um, And what's kind of really sad, I think, is that um, 
you know, coalition or, or liberal governments, state governments, are basically not going to roll state schools simply state schools out because simply because they're liberal or conservative governments. At the same time, there is optimism. One, safe schools continues. And two, even those states, such as New South Wales and Tasmania, that aren't rolling out safe schools on a state level, their anti-bullying programs will now have to specifically and explicitly address homophobia in some way, shape or form. And that was never a guarantee before all this, all this stuff started. That sounds really, really positive. And I know that you've written a lot about how safe schools would have changed your upbringing. I grew up as a queer woman in, in Canberra and completely mm. closeted. And I guess, yeah, just seeing seeing the effects of what, what safe schools could do for, for kids, particularly in regional towns, is pretty profound. Um, Absolutely. We've, we've seen a raft of problems, um, you know, of, of hate, of prejudice, of violence, both physical and online, since the the postal plebiscite has come in, into public discussion. Do you mm. believe anything, you know, positive uh, has come from this process, some, some hope or light in a, in a pretty disgusting dark time? Yeah, I think, I think one thing is that it's galvanised and mobilised people as well. So it's had to, on a very fundamental level, I think it's a tragedy that we're going through this at all. It's $122 million of taxpayer money that we're basically using on, you know, if it's, it's, it's not a vote because votes are binding. It's not even a plebiscite because a plebiscite would be mandatory. It's not even really a survey because surveys are statistically accurate. It's, it's a vox pop, essentially. That's what we're spending our money on. So I think that's really tragic. I also think it's really sad that it's tearing a lot of families apart, a lot of queer adults have spent their lives getting to a point of peace with their family and now this is kind of raising up really personal conversations that they haven't needed to have for a while and it's really destroying personal relationships but the thing that i'd say is positive is seeing um look a lot of a lot of straight heterosexual cisgender allies um are coming are coming to the party and they're taking up the slack which i think has been really wonderful just seeing my heterosexual friends hang up rainbow flags so their neighbours can see, gathering in parks to do all the phone calls because I'm so exhausted. I can't fathom making phone calls to people who don't want to listen to me right now. So the fact that they're doing that really means a lot. That support, that public outpouring of love has been, I think, really galvanising. Um, and I think the other thing that's kind of, I don't know if it's positive, but maybe a good reminder in all of this is that if you're born different, um, you know, whether it's you're a part of a religious or ethnic minority or if you are, you know, if you are queer yourself, you were kind of born fighting. And I know that the next couple of months are going to be tough for the queer community, but, um, you know, as Janet Bock, a transgender activist and author uh, visiting from America recently said, we're the community most equipped to have this fight because we were born fighting. Oh, how brilliant. That's Thank a you. Great quote. Thank you so much, Benjamin Law. <clears throat> I know that you're a very busy man. <laughs> very, very busy man. You're also gracing the covers of the Sydney Fringe Festival Guide as well, aren't you? I know. I'm you everywhere. are everywhere. I'm like herpes. Yeah. <laughs> I got off the plane the other day, an international flight, and there you were on posters all through the airport. It was great. I'm, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> hey, just before I go, can I just um, remind your listeners that if you want to see me talk about it, it's. Um, 
um, talk about Safe Schools more in the quarterly essay. Um, Better Red Than Dead, which is the bookshop in Newtown, which is awesome. They're having an event on Thursday, the 5th of October, um, and I'll be in conversation with Shannon Malloy. Happy to take your questions and happy to sign copies of, of the quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101. Amazing. Thank awesome. you, Ben. And Ben has selected an, uh, a track for us this morning. This is by um, top queer artist Frank Ocean. This is Ivy. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. Said you love me. The start of nothing. I had no chance to prepare. I couldn't see you coming. The start of nothing. Ooh, I could hit you now. It's quite alright to hit me now. When we both know that deep down, the feeling still deep down is good.
was Frank Ocean with Ivy. Thank you to Benjamin Law for picking that song for us. Our next guest, Deborah Kelly, uh, began making socially engaged work in the early 1980s and has been exhibited across Australia and uh, internationally for many years. Deborah's work is currently in uh, public body uh, number two at Artspace and her upcoming project, The Unfair unflinching gaze at Bathurst. She recently finished her first solo exhibition uh, overseas, an incredible, very queer feminist show, Venus Envy, um, which I cannot, I cannot pronounce the uh, the name of of the gallery. Deborah, could you give us a hand with the pronunciation? I can just give you the wrong pronunciation. <laughs> that's the a wrong pronunciation is the Quindemudset. Oh, that sounds pretty good. good. Yeah, yeah. I know that sounds good, but it doesn't sound like Danish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey, Deborah, how? What was it like to show there, and how did the rest of the world respond to Deborah Kelly? Um, you know, it was pretty fun. It was pretty very exciting to be invited to have a solo show in. Denmark in a museum, in the Women's Museum it actually is, that's what those words mean, which I think you actually pronounce something like spaghetti bolognese. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't get very much notice because in fact I was the fallback position, I was their plan B, but the truth is the plan A was um, Anoni used to be Anthony and the Johnsons. Whoa. And then Noni pulled out. If you're B to a noni, exactly, you're doing pretty <laughs> goddamn well. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't cut at all. I wanted to have a t-shirt to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just meant that I had to do it pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, it's a social history museum, not an art museum. Social history really suits me because my work seeks to participate in the world that it, you know, conjures and wants to address. Um, so that part was really cool, but they haven't really worked with artists that much. So we had to um, have vigorous discussion on many, many occasions. Um, <clears throat> she says discreetly. <laughs> um, but at the end... Um, about 50 to 70 local women had participated in the project that I set up there, which was um, more people that than they had ever seen in the museum at once. And we did, we turned into a kind of feminist art production factory um, because we had acquired this vast archive of um, Danish women's magazines from the 1920s through the Nazi occupation right up to the very, very intense flowering of feminism in the early 80s there, late 70s, early 80s. So we had this treasure trove that was like the very substance of women's history. Oh, incredible. Um, But they were all duplicates, so we were invited to cut them up and make new things from them and... The, really, the the work that was made was so strong, really, really incredible, and so fun to get to, you know, open the door to this happening. Oh, Deborah, earlier in the episode on the show today, we spoke to Kath Fries and Barbara Campbell about their contributions to SiteWorks. You'll also be showing at the festival. What are you doing? I'm actually not. Oh, how did I get that? Were you in last year's? <laughs> My facts are all completely wrong. In we need a fact checker. I'm we sorry. really do. Oh. I actually... No, because you did all the, the collateral and stuff. So 
Abdul, you might be forgiven. Okay, okay. Yeah, you did the incredible artwork for the birds and the bees. I did. Yeah. I did do that artwork, and so my work is all over the festival, oh. which is a real thrill. And I did propose a work oh. to the oh. festival, but it didn't get funded. So I'm gonna do it next year. Okay, okay. Um, but so I made that work, which I really love, um, which is called the Venus of Venus, which. I, you know, I love a pun. Um, or maybe it's called The Birth of Venus. Something like that. Um, but yeah, I made that really sexy work, which I totally love. Although they have had to... they Censor it. They've had to censor yeah. it for certain uses. They And they wrote to me while I was in Denmark and they said, do you mind if we blur the penises? Oh. <laughs> I said, you can cut them right off. <laughs> Deborah, can we talk a little bit about that? I remember um, back at, in at Penrith, you had a show at Penrith, and it was quite extraordinary in that you would you went to the glass door to go go into the space, and there was maybe about ten warning signs about the nudity. <laughs> Do you remember some of the complaints you received back then? Um, well, the res- the complaints were all made to the gallery, and yeah. I know that I think you know it was one very vocal person and oh, her little one. team of crazy people okay. that she recruited who would never go to an art gallery anyway. Right. Um, but They're they, the ones. They are. <laughs> They're the scary ones. Yeah. Um, but I know I just said penises, but I have to say it again. That's what it was about. Right. And in fact, at the end of that show, we discovered that somebody had... Um, you know, the work that was on display there, which was contentious, was the work No Human Being is Illegal in All Our Glory, which is a work that I developed with 67 amazing people for the 2014 Sydney Biennale, which is two metre tall prints of um, naked humanity, which have been embellished with all these different collage materials uh, which are an interpretation of the stuff that the people in the pictures told us. So they're very tender and very, um, they insist very um, ardently upon the innocence of the human body. Uh, but that insistence was lost on that particular person who made all of the complaints. So there was a forest of warnings, but somebody actually damaged one of the oh, works. No. Oh, deliberately, they went out and vandalised it. Somebody vandalised one of the people's what did penises. They? Oh, really? Scratched Why do you, this is like 15th century stuff. <laughs> That's here, so strange. <laughs> Why do you think, um, well, those people or the Australian public in general have issue with, with nudity? Because it does come up, doesn't it, for artists? Um, I think it's a kind of legacy of a number of moral panics that, um, I mean, moral panic more or less constitutes our entire public discourse now. So we just have all of these shadows of stupid public explosions that, um, Mm. you know, mean that we have to work in extremely reduced circumstances and with reduced capacities to discuss things. I saw uh, the previous work that we were talking about that was for the Biennale. I saw it at the Art Gallery in New South Wales when it was up. Mm. Did you? Was there any issues showing it there at the State Gallery? Are we allowed to swear on FBI radio? Uh, yeah, we yeah. give we give a yeah. little yeah. warning. There's, there's going to be a swear. There's going to be yeah. Maybe we'll just do a Deborah Kelly might swear section. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well coming up. Yeah. Um, 
the only issue really, they, like they had a little warning at both ends, but because I was there a lot because the work was in production there because that was part of the whole idea mm. was that it was alive and it forced the gallery to be a site of production as well as just an archive. And, um, you know, the work was trying to do a lot of different things at the same time. Um, but so I was there continually with a whole lot of people working on the work and almost every day we were there teenagers would come in school groups and they would universally say that is fucking disgusting <laughs> oh the kids would say that <laughs> the kids would say that oh i think God. because of <laughs> what a response <laughs> because of old naked people oh, God. right so ageist <laughs> that is quite ageist <laughs> body shaming <laughs> And you're about to have a work uh, in Bathurst Regional Art Gallery, curated by the director there, uh, Richard Purim, and it's called The Uninching Gaze. Unflinching. Unflinching. Where's the inching coming from? <laughs> Sorry, that might be a... Fact a... check for you, David. That's, <laughs> a, that's a typo right there. Actually, um, it sounds like a penis joke. <laughs> I, I thought... Well, it's all on the male figure in yeah, art, uninching. so I thought that was... Uh... <laughs> Anyway, what will what will you be including in that exhibition? Um, well, I just don't want to say that word again. <laughs> One more time. Um, but actually, so what I'm putting in that is two of the portraits from No Human Being Is Illegal, Ramesh Nithyandran and Justin Shoulder. I've had them re-photographed at very, very large scale, and I'm printing them on organic linen three metres tall. So they're going to be kind of banners of themselves, huge banners of themselves. Wow, epic. And I'm also showing two of my, I think, maybe the best collages I've ever done in my life, which are also the simplest collages I've ever done in my life. I'll give them to you to put on your Facebook or something. because oh, I'm Yeah, definitely. Totally crazy about these works. Um, they're the simplest collages I've ever, ever made, but I've had them printed two metres tall on silk, and they are part of wow. my show Venus Envy in Denmark, and they will be back in time to go to Bathurst. Oh, incredible. Um, earlier we had Ben Law on the phone talking about his Moral Panic 101 quarterly essay and just talking about the implications of being queer today and how the plebiscite, postal plebiscite, has affected you know, all of us, I guess. As a queer woman and artist, how has this sort of affected affected you currently in the way that you're making or the way that you're experiencing? Well, it's a pretty hard question to answer because a combination of the entire nation getting to vote on me and menopause is making me extremely <laughs> tearful oh, and full of rage. Mm. Yeah. So, And, you know, rage with nowhere to go sometimes leaks out of your eyes. Mm. It's very, very uncomfortable. But I must say, also, I have received a lot of extremely warm cuddles from people I don't even know very well. So, you know, the level of solidarity, especially from other people who have been marginalised by this government and the forces of this government, um, which is everybody on the margins of power, I think, queer people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and really especially Muslims, I must say. Um, there has been a lot of kind of rueful and maybe accidental solidarity across those um, 
parts of the culture which are being squeezed out and excluded and told that we are not wanted and told that our humanity itself is in question. And so, like, it's an excruciatingly difficult time, I think. And if I really talk much more, I probably will cry. Um, but it is also an opportunity for new levels of loving solidarity, and I'm grateful for that. Thank mm. you, Deborah. Um, hey, we've got a curated track that you picked for us today. Can you explain it? Um, um, <laughs> I just wanted to dedicate this song to my beautiful girlfriend, Sue Goldfish. Oh, and it's called Oh Susanna by the Be Good Tanyas. Thank you so much for coming in this morning. Um, this is it. Thank you for having me.
Thank you, Deborah Kelly, for that amazing track, Oh Susanna, by the Be Good Tanyas. She made all of us leak from our eyes after that um, beautiful dedication. Um, what's happening this week? Anything happening uh, this week? Kath Freeze big... is in a um, the graduation show, her PhD graduation show at SCA. It's mm-hmm. opening Thursday and it finishes on Saturday. And, and the Big Anxiety Festival opens this week, doesn't it? And I am an amb- amb- as an ambassador of the Big Anxiety Festival, I knew and always knew that it opens this Wednesday at UNSW <laughs> Galleries. And that is a massive program across multiple yeah. venues, all out to Western Sydney. We've got Marion Abood and... And Vicky Van Hoot, oh, they're, right. they're creating something by the Parramatta River. Oh, I'm um, part of a project epic. at Fairfield Museum yeah. and Peacock Gallery. With it's called "We Are All Affected" with a collective called Eleven of uh, Eleven Muslim Australian Artists. Who are they? Uh, Khalid Sabsabi, uh, Chidham, uh, um, um, your brother, <laughs> my brother. <laughs> yes, yeah, there's, there's eleven of us in total. <laughs> And you're also, you're doing a few public programs, I saw. Yeah, I'm doing a couple of workshops and talks over the next couple of weekends, out in Auburn and out in Fairfield. Um, also, you, every, everyone should check out the Young Archies. If you haven't already and you're near the Arco New South Wales and you've seen the Archibald, please don't leave the Young Archies out of it. There's some really, really terrific works there. By their parents, yes. No, um, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm joking, sorry. Um, thank you for Matt. listening. We had a really great big gay-themed uh uh, canvas today. It was really good um, and so fabulous to get Benjamin Law. He's, you know, wanted man. Um, I love Benjamin. It, what a body, articulate, charming, incredible, incredibly, you know, creative and what he's got the family law season two. Yes. Out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On the ABC. You, yeah. Yeah. How incredible. Very smart. It's good. Oh, man. Bit jealous, actually, of his <laughs> amazing skills. Um, thank you for listening today. To all of our guests, Canvas is brought to you by a team of artists Abdul Abdullah, David Capra, myself, Nat Randall, and our executive producer, Aurora Scott. Abdul, you've curated our final track for today. Can you explain what this song is? Oh, this one's Turquoise Prince. Uh, he's a friend of mine, he's from Canberra, and I think he's the future of music in Australia. So, this is his most recent release. Uh, it's called Like Your Friends. You know I never liked your friends You don't even like your friends Girl, you're nothing like your friends No, so break away Just break away Now break away Uh, I couldn't make it to your dinner, I was busy, sorry And I'm getting pretty sick of acting fake in front of All your friends at the dinner table, they think I'm going Nowhere at the speed of light, I swear to God I'll show them Wow, Debbie drives a Beamer She's got a different Louis V bag every time I see her It's cause her boyfriend's like 40 They're always breaking up and making up in front of us, it's getting boring I'm just saying what I witness on the regular Wish I didn't have to be the one to let you know Maybe you won't, well at least you know um, You know I never liked your friends You don't even like your friends Girl, you're nothing like your friends No, so break away Just break away, now break away I'm already running late for the party I think I'll give it a miss, give it a miss. 
Plus I've had enough of meeting arrogant pricks. Yes, Jessica's boyfriend is obviously rich, but I couldn't care less about expensive shit. It's like that's an AMG. Wow, he must have a good job. Must have worked real hard for everything he's ever bought. But then again, he's like 60, and he always hits a brothel whenever he visits Sydney. Yes, I went a little overboard with that remark. But you compare me to the type of man without a heart. Maybe one day, girl, you thank me for the wake-up call. But then again, maybe you won't. Well, at least you know. You know I never liked your friends. You don't even like your friends. Girl, you're nothing like your friends. No, so break away. Just break away. You don't want to be seen in my green Mitsubishi. 96 model, sorry, it's not a Ferrari. Sorry, I'm realistic and prefer to spend my money on real shit, not material shit. Ugh. Now I see the similarities. Now I'm beginning to see what's really happening. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.